My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect. And I'm grateful that so many are ready and willing to shoulder this awesome responsibility. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, November 22nd. Before we all head out on Thanksgiving, just a few reflections of where we stand today. That clip you just heard was from floor speech given on November 17th, where Nancy Pelosi announced she'd step back from leadership of the House Democratic Caucus. Um, we'll come to that in just a moment. But first, of course, is just to talk a little bit, perhaps for our final time, about the midterm elections. Those midterms are winding down right now. California Representative David Villato won re-election, becoming only the second House Republican who voted to impeach Trump to remain in Congress. And at this point, we're looking at a 219 Republican seats to 212 democratically held seats in the U.S. House, with only four races remaining uncalled. Freshman Democrat Mary Peltola is expected to beat Sarah Palin and win a full term as a congresswoman from Alaska, while Republicans are expected to win the last two uncalled California House races, plus the Colorado third, where Democrat Adam Frisch has already conceded this closely watched race to Representative Lauren Boebert. She just won by 551 votes, despite running in a district where Republicans held a nine-point advantage. So another sign of perhaps the exhaustion with the extreme dynamics in some parts of the Republican Party. But if these last few projections play out as expected, Republicans end up with a nine-vote majority in the House, far more slim than they expected. And while Kevin McCarthy appears on track to become the next Speaker of the House, the drama and the negotiation within his own caucus, which I talked about last week, continues. And expect that to be a big theme in the coming months and years of what will it look like for Republican House leadership in a very tight and fractious caucus. There seems to be alignment right now around a lot of grandstanding investigations and concerns around the dynamics of that, but whether any policymaking can happen within that thin of a majority and within a split Republican House Democratic Senate remains to be seen. Other things in terms of transitions, you know, Mitch McConnell was reelected as Senate Minority Leader, despite what turned out to be a symbolic protest campaign by Florida Senator Rick Scott. Many people believe this was really Scott's attempt to divert attention from his own poor showing as chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and also to position himself for future leadership when McConnell retires. On the Democratic side, of course, Chuck Schumer is going to continue as majority leader. And as we heard in that clip to start us off, Nancy Pelosi, who made history as the first woman to be named Speaker of the House, announced she's stepping down after 20 years as Democratic leader. She served as the head of the party for over two decades in Congress and ending this probably one of the longest standing, most powerful political careers in recent memory. She has stated she's intending to stay in Congress, saying the attack on her husband 
convinced her to stay, and many are expecting her to quietly support the new leadership from the backbench, trying to ensure an effective transition and keep her caucus united. Looks like Hakeem Jeffries is headed to become the first black leader of a major U.S. political party in Congress, and at 52 years old, one of the youngest leaders in generation. It also means we're going to have Brooklyn Democrats in line to lead both caucuses of congressional Democrats. How that will play out doesn't seem like there are any big fissures in the Democratic caucus at this moment, but of course a lot depends on what happens in Georgia for the, on the Senate side. We'll talk about that in just a second. But before we leave the midterms, last thing to talk about, of course, are the election challenges. As I said last week, they've largely not appeared. It was mostly a peaceful and normal election process. The only major outstanding questions at this point come from Arizona. The attorney general's race there is headed to an automatic recount for the first time in over 100 years. If the Democrats win, it will also be flipping the attorney general and governorship to have all three races held by Democrats. That would be a first for a long time in Arizona and a real shift in a political battleground state. And of course, after losing the Arizona gubernatorial election, Carrie Lake is ironically claiming that her voters were disenfranchised after supporting efforts to make voting harder for so many in Arizona. In particular, she's pointing to issues in Maricopa County, the area around Phoenix, and access to polling sites there. But a review of the New York Times actually shows that most of the individual stories that so far they're lifting up saying these are examples of how people were disenfranchised. The voters actually successfully cast their ballots. They may have faced confusion or had to move, go vote at a different polling place or face delays. But in almost every example that's been examined, the voter whose story was being shared did vote and had their vote counted like normal. Late campaign has claimed they have more significant evidence that they'll share soon. But most election observers expect these challenges to go the way of Trump's legal challenges in 2020, damaging from a narrative perspective and continuing to erode trust in the electoral process, but unlikely unless there's some revelation nobody knows about to actually change the outcomes of the Arizona gubernatorial election. So that leads us to Georgia, which is the runoff for the U.S. Senate. Big thing there, Georgia judge ruled that counties may offer early voting this Saturday as part of the Senate runoff election rebuking guidance from the Republican Secretary of State. But there's a scramble in Georgia because of the new laws that Republicans passed. There's incredible hurdles to finishing the count for the general election and by shortening the runoff to only four weeks, a huge amount of race to get and be prepared for the runoff election. A lot of reports of election officials working 12 and 16 hour days trying to get prepared, questions of whether they'll be able to simply have the people power to carry off another election when they're already exhausted and money pouring in from both sides, but all questions about who's raising enough, who will do enough turnout. It's a critical moment. And I've been saying to many that while the control of the U.S. Senate is clearly defined now, this race still matters. It matters in terms of whether you're sending a leader of color or a election denier to Congress from Georgia. It matters in terms of the balance of power in so many ways. And we'll think, look at this in the months to come. If Democrats had one person out sick, they'd lose the majority unless Warnock wins in Georgia. If they Warnock wins, it gets rid of the power sharing agreement in the Senate. And so changes the dynamics in all the Senate committees and how they move forward and having Democrats having a one vote majority in every 
uh, committee. So lots of procedural and powerful changes as well as narrative changes. And the 24 map looks bad for Democrats. So winning this race is a hedge against losses in just two years. So lots of implications, both politically and for the broader kind of dynamics of democracy that we'll continue to talk about. Beyond Congress, other things that have been developing, the Elon Musk has announced that he's reinstating the account of former President Donald Trump, um, although Trump so far has said he's not going back to Twitter because he's staying on Truth Social. We'll see how that happens. Also, because Trump is running for president again, Attorney General Merrick Garland has announced the appointment of a special counsel, Jack Smith, to oversee the congressional investigations into Trump to have some distance between the Justice Department for a candidate for office. And President Biden has asked the Supreme Court to let his student loan debt relief program to go into effect. The Department of Education has started sending out emails to people telling them that they are approved for student loan debt relief, but that Republican interventions through the courts have stopped it from moving forward. So it's both a political dynamic and a messaging dynamic, as well as impacting the lives of millions of people around the country. But this back and forth with the court is going to continue to be a question for what happens with our democracy. Similar, the case moving forward around independent state legislature theory is going to be the other thing I'm looking at. We are seeing uh, hearings being set. That is moving forward. It's probably the biggest threat to the fair administration of elections and to representative democracy would be if this Supreme Court found in favor of the independent state legislature theory. But you're also seeing a lineup already starting. Uh, we talked about it earlier this year, and it's beginning again, of all the bills that are moving forward and all the attempts to shift and reduce the access to the ballot to make it harder to go and vote. In Texas, for example, the legislature has already pre-filed over 40 bills that they won't come into session until January 10th, but they can pre-file bills. Many of them have a focus on criminalizing elections, you know, creating criminal penalties or increasing them for when voting, when you're ineligible, expanding authority over who can enforce election law, providing the attorney general the ability to punish local prosecutors for failing to sufficiently enforce criminal election laws, all sorts of things designed to intimidate pressure and reduce access to the ballot. So these ballot questions, these questions of the legal protections for our democracy have not gone away probably go quieter from now until the end of the year. We often see things get quiet during the holiday seasons, lots of back behind the scenes um, positioning, but then we'll be back in full gear after the first of the year. But we'll be back next week with another edition of 10 Minutes on Democracy. But for now, I just want to wish you all a restful Thanksgiving holiday. I look forward to talking with you again next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care.